Welcome, everyone. It's so lovely to see all of you here today. And um, I'm so grateful to be joined by Dr. Sylvia Earle. Yay! <laughs> you all clearly know who she is. I don't need to introduce her. I'm Simran Sethi. I'll introduce myself. I'm Simran Sethi. I'm an environmental journalist, and I'm writing a book on the loss of biodiversity in food, which directly connects to the brilliant work of Dr. Sylvia Earle. And you know, you clearly already know her. She is her royal deepness. She is an ocean elder, and she is a hero of the planet. And I want to just briefly tell you why we're sitting here today. I was um, asked to come to Australia to speak, and when they told me Dr. Earle would be here, I uh, thought back to an interview I did with her back in 2007, I believe it was. This woman has changed my life, and I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that about very many people. But I will tell you what Dr. Earle said to me. I was doing an interview, and I had just finished reading her book, Sea Change, and I was carrying with me the weight of the understanding that 90% of our fish stocks were depleted. And I leaned into Dr. Earle, and I said, Dr. Earle, <laughs> 90%. And she leaned back in, and she said, yes, Simran, but the other 10%. And I have to tell you, like, I've been talking about environmental issues for about a decade, which is, you know, a fraction of the time Dr. Earle has been doing this. But the fact that a woman who had dedicated her life to these issues and could experience this grief but still see the hope, the other 10%, was everything for me. So I asked if I could engage in conversations with her for that very reason, because of what she has taught me and because of what I know she will teach you today. So, lucky you. <laughs> lucky, lucky us. <laughs> lucky me. Um, let's, yes, <laughs> lucky all of us. Let's start off and set the stage with a short video that, that gives a little bit more insight about the incredible life that Dr. Earl has led. And fire away. <laughs> here we go. This is a This good is a little one. piece of a film that will soon be here in Australia by Netflix. It's called Mission Blue. This is just one little taste. The most ambitious project yet in ocean research has just started here in the sheltered bay of a beautiful West Indian island. 1970. It's uh -huh. the underwater base for a research project being run by a group of American universities with United States government backing. When I was at Harvard in 1969, I saw a notice on the bulletin board. How would you like as a scientist to spend two weeks living underwater down in the Virgin Islands? That was the pitch. <laughs> I'd already been diving a lot, more than a thousand hours, and published a number of things. And it didn't occur to me that women need not apply. And Jim Miller, the head of the program who had to finally make the call, said, well, half the fish are female, half the dolphins, half the whales, I guess we could put up with a few women. Now a team of diners will attempt to live for two weeks as quiet residents on the sea floor. Ironically, these aquanauts are not men with extraordinary physical endurance and stamina, but five young and attractive women. 
the world's first real-life mermaids. <laughs> Their leader is a renowned scientist, Dr. Sylvia Earle, a marine botanist and an experienced diver. but you slip through a hole in the floor and you're in the water. And we could be in the water 10, 12 hours a day. I felt like a kid in a candy store, except that everything was living. You're outside with the creatures and you just get to know them as individuals. You actually see this group of five angel fish that always there first thing in the morning and they have different attitudes different personalities that's i think what has given me a different perspective than most probably have not just about the ocean but about the creatures who live there i went into the tektite project as an ivory tower scientist not really in the public eye but tektite changed everything i had to get out of my shop. We had a parade down the streets of Chicago. Mayor Daly gave us the keys to the city. Armed to tell the truth, pick out the real Sylvia Earl. because you and women like you have paved the way. I mean, we could start back with 1969 being at Harvard, much less everything that you did <laughs> underwater. And I tallied up all the hours. You have spent how many 270 days underwater? At one point, you I were take showers, months. too. <laughs> <Yeah. Yes. laughs> well, okay, rain. that's a whole, that's a lot more days. <laughs> you were pregnant at one point, four months pregnant underwater. You were the first woman to walk untethered on the ocean floor. What did that mean to you? What did that feel to you, being the first? It was never about being the first. It's just doing what you do. You know, I want to acknowledge in the audience a person who's one of my personal heroes, who's been a leader <laughs> the first in many ways, underwater, and that's Valerie Taylor. It's right here, here in the front row. Yeah. 
She's been not only my contemporary, she's been a source of great inspiration with her husband, Ron Taylor, pioneers in, in exploring the ocean, documenting the ocean, and sharing the view of this incredible time of change. Really, when, when Valerie and I and Ron and, well, actually, another resident of, of Sydney, Frank Talbot, who was head of the Australian Museum, a National Museum, and later the Smithsonian and LA County Museum of Natural History. He's been all over the world, but I met him first in 1964 on an expedition where I was the only woman with 70 guys. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. But he was... <laughs> Imagine being a guy with 70 women <laughs> on an expedition around the world at sea. But anyway, Frank was also... Well, they called the women on the tech-type program that you just saw. They called us, didn't call us aquanauts. All the guys were aquanauts. They called us aqua bells, aqua chicks, aqua babes, even aqua naughties. I wanted to call Frank an aqua hunk. <laughs> he was one of the aqua naughts. And uh, anyway, you know, so much has happened since then. It's only a few decades. Geologically speaking, it is nothing. But there's been more change on the, this little blue speck in the universe, politically, socially, economically, but certainly in terms of changes in the natural world, particularly now that we can see in the ocean. A lot of change had happened by the 1970s on the land to the, the natural systems with the trees, the wildlife, the water, and what we'd already begun putting in the atmosphere, but the ocean yeah, we'd already had some big inroads with, with whales <laughs> and the large creatures in the sea, but it, the, the, the rate of change since then with our new technologies to find, extract, and, and remove so much of the wildlife, we're clear-cutting the ocean of wildlife. Mm -hmm. And we're also using it, have been, without thinking that it could matter. We thought the ocean was too big to fail not only in the, in the 70s, but there are some people who still think that the ocean is the right place to put things you don't want close to where people tend to live, as if that's okay, not realizing it's our life support system, the cornerstone of what keeps Earth hospitable for the likes of us. It's so interesting because you uh, described to me when we first spoke that the oceans are our lungs, like they're the lungs of the world. And the interdependence that we have on this thing that many view as a dumping ground, plastic pollution is at an all-time high. Right. You know, we're seeing the deaths of coral reefs. We, um, there's, I mean, we can go on and on about this. And you had mentioned... Um, in your book, Sea Change, asking the question, what is the forever cost? What is the cost of not taking care of these things in perpetuity? And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you respond now to, um, to this loss, because clearly you also see hope. Clearly, you know, yeah. things, as you said, politically, racially, today is the 50th anniversary of the, the marches uh, that started in Selma, Alabama in the United States. To, um, to support advancements to ensure that all people would have the right to vote, African-American, people of all color. And, um, and yet we still see the same struggles, and yet we still have so much further to go. And I wonder, you know, the, the title of this panel is How to Save the Planet. So where, where do we begin? Well, I could 
Start by saying you should put more women in charge. Right. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So, then before we go any further, why, why women? Why not? I mean, why not exactly? That's so the question. What is, it, what is why, the characteristic? Why aren't there more women? Yeah. It's a social. It's just the way we have crafted our societies, and, and it's in various ways all over the world. And here in Australia and North America, other parts of the planet, things are much better for women than they ever have been in the past. And other parts of the world, there's still a long way to go. But, you know, never before in history has there been a better time to, to really have hope. You cannot have hope if you don't know what the problems are. Mm -hmm. Now we know. Mm -hmm. We're armed with knowledge as never before. We've learned more, certainly about the ocean, about space, about who we are, where we've come from, and where we might be going than during any time in history. We're connected so that a kid in Africa can get a bright idea and share it with somebody in San Francisco and immediately have it picked up here in Sydney. That, that we have this capacity now with seven billion of us, which is bad news in many ways, but it's also, you think about it, we have access to seven billion minds, aware as never before that we've got problems. And, and that this is the time, as never before, maybe as never again, for us to use the power of knowing to get to a better place. If you don't know, you can't care. You, you might know and not care, <laughs> but now a kid has in his or her pocket access to understanding that the brightest minds that ever existed before now. You think about who were the brightest people that you think about in the past? Ptolemy, Galileo, even Einstein did not have access to the knowledge. We have access to what those predecessors gave us. It's there as part of our inheritance. And we can draw on that wisdom, that knowledge, and realize that in all of the universe, there's no place like Earth. It wasn't until 1969, really, that people were putting footprints on the moon, looking back on Earth from afar, and really beginning to set the stage for this, this wave of understanding that we have taken the planet ever so much for granted, and a lot of people still do. But now we get it in ways that you could not get before now. We understand that if you like to breathe, you'll take care of the ocean, because that's where most of the oxygen is generated. Trees matter too, but without the ocean, as the thermoregulator for the planet, as the system that has most of life on Earth, the greatest diversity of life in the ocean, the greatest hope for our future is to take care of the natural systems that have gotten us to where we presently are. All creatures use the natural world. Birds do, you know, fish do, earthworms do. We're, we're like every other living thing. We use the natural world so that we can live. But there's no precedent for the magnitude of the impact that humans have had on the natural world. We literally 
are changing the nature of nature through our actions. And we've been doing it in ignorance until right about now, when for the first time we can see that if we keep doing what we're doing, we have the capacity to destroy the systems that keep us alive. We not only have the capacity, we're doing it. Half the coral reefs are either already gone or are in a state of sharp decline. So you can say, ha, huh, woe is me, as with the fish. 90% of many of the fish that we so love to munch on are already gone. Sharks, tunas, swordfish, grouper, snapper, even the little fish. We're so good at killing them. We've got to get better at caring for them. It's not just about the fish or the lobsters or the abalone or the shrimp or whatever it is. It's about understanding what the limits are. I mean, it's okay to eat fish, I suppose. I stopped a long time ago because I know too much. I can't do it. I just can't because I know how important they are as what keeps the ocean functioning and how desperately in trouble they are owing to how much has been depleted. We've taken big chunks out of the machinery. If you think of life as on Earth as part of a great system, living machine, if you will, that it took four and a half billion years to get just right for the likes of us, and it's taken us just a few centuries, mostly the last few decades, to, in, in an unprecedented way, change the nature of the world and how it works. We're seeing the ocean become more acidic. There are there natural processes that can make this happen? It happened maybe 55 million years ago when whatever changes took place at the time through whatever forces we can't really anticipate what it was that drove the warming of the planet at that time, but it, there are these natural cycles, but nothing like what is driving the swiftness of the change that we're now experiencing. And, and we're not making this up. The great thing about being a scientist is you learn to look at the evidence. You, you look at our capacity to measure, to look at the before, the during, the, you know, look at the trends and then follow those trends. This is not <coughs> mysterious. Any little kid can do it and kids are doing it. Mm -hmm. They are, they're looking at the evidence. The 10 year olds, are, are really pushing the much of what is cause for hope these days. They're saying, why are we doing these stupid things when if you follow the trends, the world I'm growing up in, that I will have when I'm, look at me, your age, um, is going to be a terrible place. Can't we change things? Can't we do different? Do we have to let the last shark be killed? We have the capacity to do it. But the hope is we had the capacity to kill every last whale. Mm -hmm. And starting in 1986, around the world, and Australia was very much a leader in this process, a moratorium on commercial extraction of whales. And it's still in place, although there are a few countries that still take whales, even though other values have taken precedence over barrels of oil and pounds of meat. We look at whales with new eyes. We need to look at all of nature with new eyes. Look at tuna with new eyes. Look at grouper with new eyes. Look at squid. Oh, cephalopods rock. Oh, 
Uh, uh. Exactly. Who doesn't love an octopus? But, you know, some people like to eat them, and I can't imagine eating an octopus now that I know That's, their um, importance in the ocean. <laughs> well, it's such an... I actually wrote the question, do you eat fish, or is that the equivalent of eating a family member for you? <laughs> so I've gotten my answer there, and I, I mean, there are about seven questions I want to ask just from what you said, but I do <laughs> want to just point out a lot of well-intentioned people, and you're sitting in a, in a panel on, you know, a conversation on how to save the planet, so I suspect you're among them, um, feel that being pescatarians, eating only aquatic life, is uh, better than eating meat or poultry, and that isn't not. the case. It's not, <laughs> and I just, I want to clarify that, because I think that's a really important thing to consider. There's a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer, mm, and yeah. he describes modern fishing techniques that are far worse than confined animal feed operations because so much is mechanized. And please add on to this that um, horrific amounts, amounts of waste are, are you know, generated as bycatch. And so, you know, it's the collateral damage for the fish that we eat. And he writes, imagine being served a plate of sushi. But this plate also holds all of the animals that were killed for your serving of sushi. That plate might have to be five feet across, and I should have converted that, but I didn't. So that's like, a, I mean, that's a, that's a giant plate for that. I, I'm, let me put it to you this way. I'm five feet tall, okay? One plate of sushi. That's what we did. Is that why you stopped when you said that it's because you knew too much? It's... it's comprehensive. If I think about my own health, which is a factor, I suppose. You know, I appeared on the Stephen Colbert show, and after we had a little conversation, he said, so you're suggesting that I should stop eating tuna? Well, how am I going to get my mercury then? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of it. You know, the further up the food chain you go, the higher the concentration of the things you do not want in you. And most of what we take from the ocean are carnivores, high in the food chain, and they've been around for a while. Uh, most tuna, um, you know, they're not like chickens that, that grow very fast, and they, from an egg, you know, not even a year old, they, they can go to market. And they can start reproducing when they're less than a year old to lay eggs and have more, you know, the cycle goes on and on. A lot of people think that that what we, the farm animals are uh, a standard for what's, what we're taking out of the ocean. We even talk about harvesting the sea. It's not harvesting. Harvesting is like planting something, you're a farmer, you, but it, it sort of washes away the concept that this is wildlife. These are wild creatures. Most of them are much older than farm animals that go to market in the shortest possible time. And guess what? They all eat plants naturally. Cows, chickens, pigs, goats, whatever they are. They're mostly dedicated herbivores. It's not cost-effective to, to raise carnivores to eat unless you take them from the sea, where they have no value. They're free, right? What's in the ocean from the wild? It's free. I got into trouble when I was the chief scientist at NOAA, the agency in the United States that has to do with fisheries and weather service and all of that, because I pointed out to the National Marine Fisheries Service that what seems to be obvious, they, that fish have an accounting base of zero when they're swimming in the ocean alive. It's like trees have no value until they're turned into bored feet of lumber. It, trees are free, right? 
got to get rid of them so you can plant something where those pesky trees are. Well, the ocean, it's only when you kill the fish and take them to market that they're valuable. So, when you don't value what you don't pay for. And so, they started calling me the Sturgeon General. <laughs> because I made such well a fuss about the fish. I, I said, what are we thinking? That it takes, for bluefin tuna, for example, the favored fish for sushi and sashimi, according to the world's expert on tuna, Barbara Block, another great woman scientist based in California, she said 10 to 14 years for a tuna to go bluefin from an egg to a mom or dad tuna that can make more tuna. Well, we're not even letting them get to be 10 to 14 years old at this stage. Most of the tuna that you'll see in markets, I mean, they're big fish, but they haven't matured to the stage where they can start reproducing themselves. And, you know, the numbers are perilously low. The latest for the Pacific bluefin stocks are something like 6% of what they were. I mean, back if you take the 70s as 100% to lose most of them, 90 plus percent gone, 94 percent. We're so good at killing them. They taste so good. But do you want to have tuna in the future? Well, then we got to stop killing them now, if there's any hope. Mm -hmm. Raising tuna, some people are trying to do that. Some starting with eggs, some capturing young tuna and farming them at sea. But that, that doesn't do the job. You know, and what do you do with those that you take from the ocean and farm? Well, you eat them. You don't put them back in the ocean to make more tuna. Mm. I don't know. You know, just think about it. Now, for the first time, we can begin to understand that wildlife, we have to think of what's in the ocean. Lobsters, oysters, clams, abalone. They're all wild. How many, how many wild birds, songbirds, do we have in grocery stores, in, in, in our restaurants? Um, people do take a few wild birds once in a while, and maybe in the future, that's the way it will be for fish too, once in a while, you know? And certainly in some areas, coastal communities, island countries, they don't have many choices, but when you're personal survival is directly linked to what you take from the natural world, you'll do a much better job of making sure you don't get the numbers down to 10% of what there was. You will behave in a way that you're sure that there's enough to reproduce. You'll protect areas where you just leave it alone, leave the systems alone. We have started to do that on the land, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until this country 1975, with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority began to do something similar for the ocean, to realize if you want to have it in a reasonably good condition going forward, you have to, have to stop killing things. Like, duh. <laughs> but initially, only about 3% of the Great Barrier Reef was really safe for fish and lobsters and otherwise. Now it's 33%. Still not really the kind of protection that the Great Barrier Reef probably needs in order to have a secure future, but the idea has caught on. So around the world, like the national park system on land that began in my country early in the 20th century, 
some say the best idea America ever had to establish national parks, an idea that's caught on. And I was here in Sydney just a few months ago for the World Parks Congress that takes place every 10 years. And it was wonderful to see attention, not to the exclusion of, you know, not excluding anything, but shifting to include the ocean in a way that is unprecedented. Previous parks congresses, I was at the last one in Durban 10 years ago, it was mostly about the land, terrestrial places, and we need more of them too. It's about taking care of nature, writ large, land and sea. But for the first time, nations around the world are beginning to embrace the blue. And part of that started as a consequence of actions taken in 1986, the same year that we stopped killing whales commercially, globally. And that was with the establishment of exclusive economic zones around the country, countries of the world that have a coast. So there's another Australia, blue Australia, woohoo, you know, that's as big as, bigger actually, than the land part of Australia. And in 2012, glory be for your environment minister, Tony Burke, who led the effort to look at Australia's exclusive economic zone and again, in a leadership role, said one-third should be protected as a park, half of that fully protected. What a concept. Again, Australia leading the way. Unfortunately, it hasn't been implemented under the current administration, but there's hope. Maybe in due course, it'll become the reality that I and many others dream of, and to set the pace well, at the same time, we, ha we haven't done anything quite so bold in the United States yet, but President Obama just in the past year established the largest fully protected area in the ocean on the planet by extending a place that George W. Bush, not the greatest known for his environmental ethics, but he did something that will put him down in the history books for doing something really positive for the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. And at the time, he established the largest no-take protected area for the ocean. It's like saving the bank account, you know, protecting the assets, protecting the planet that keeps us alive. It's Palau, this little island country, a little speck of land, but a lot of ocean under the jurisdiction since 1986 when nations began to understand and embrace their blue backyards, front yards. <laughs> um, and and, and the, the power is there now, invested in countries with a coastline to take care of much of the planet in ways that are unprecedented. That's great news if we just exercise that power. But there's another part of this, and that's the half of the world beyond national jurisdiction, mm -hmm. the high seas. Mm -hmm. And there's good news there too. Bad news, good news. Bad news is we've been extracting. There are a dozen nations that have disproportionately been taken from the high seas as the Wild West, if you will, where there aren't so many constraints about how much of what you can take beyond the areas that are exclusive economic zones. And so, you know, a number of nations, Australia is one of them, New Zealand, Russia, Japan, China, Spain, anyway, 
Portugal with fleets out in the high seas extracting from the global commons. The global commons. Every one of you has a vested interest, an equal voice in a part beyond national jurisdiction. But it has not been acknowledged that way. A few have just gone out and taken because who's going to stop them, you know? But the United Nations, at a meeting I attended in New York mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, agreed to begin to establish a framework of governance for the high seas to protect the diversity of life out there, which would include looking at the fishing. And, and you know, there, there's, there's some protocols for the bottom of the ocean, the deep sea mining, deep sea bed authority, which we have to keep an eye on because already leases in the high seas for areas as large as Germany have been allowed to be put in place. That means a handful of countries, again, are disproportionately taking from the globe, global commons. Mm -hmm. We need to know this and then let your voice be heard. If you think it's a good idea and okay, then okay. <laughs> but figure out, get up to speed. What are the consequences of mining the deep sea with bulldozer-like equipment, not respecting the life that is there, not even knowing what the life is in the deep sea. Anyway, this is cause for hope because power is now invested in individuals beyond governments. You know, who doesn't tweet? Or Facebook, or pick up the phone even, or just, you know, write, communicate. Use your power, whatever it takes. We have avenues of making a difference that didn't exist in 1970 or any time prior to that, or 1980 or 1990, and the pace is picking up in terms of individual power to make a difference. Absolutely. That's so, that's so important for everyone to know because I think that that's one of the greatest challenges people feel, particularly when it comes to the ocean. It's so vast and it's largely invisible to many of us that it's like, well, where do I start? But you are giving us the blueprint of where to start. And I dive. Think it's Learn how to dive. Follow <laughs> Valerie into the ocean. You know, really, my mother waited until she was 81. Oh, good. Got and time. put on a face mask and it was in Bonaire. Water was clear and warm, lots of fish. And after that first experience, she <laughs> told our friends, if you're 81, don't wait any longer. <laughs> but you can still do it, you know? If you breathe, you can, you can dive. Or at least you can snorkel. You can go out and get acquainted with the ocean. And of course, aquaria provide halfway houses for fish and people. <laughs> you can go right here in Sydney. Aquariums have become popular ways for people around the world to at least see fish swimming with something other than lemon slices and butter. Exactly. And it makes a difference. Suppose that if aliens only knew humans from our dead bodies, they'd never know about our music, our humor, uh, that, that we have a voice, <laughs> or whatever it is, the talents the things that we value about ourselves. Most people only know fish dead. True, you just never get to see them the way I have gotten to see them, the way Ron and Valerie showed the world about how beautiful they are when they're alive. 
Uh, and you don't think about eating them when you see them doing their thing underwater any more than you think of eating songbirds when you get to see them, you know, doing what they do. They're enchanting. And uh, when, you, when you make the acquaintance of an octopus, and I have <laughs> any number of times, they're curious. You know, they'll take their little tentacle and... and right here in Sydney Harbour, I had a chance to meet with some cephalopods a few years ago. You can do it. I mean, they're right here in your backyard. Those beautiful cuttlefish that are this big, with eyes this big, you know? And they're gentle creatures. You can go with respect up to where they are, and if you just stay put and watch them, they can't resist coming up to check you out. They'll come over and they'll like this. <laughs> and you can have a little, you know, experience with one of your wild neighbors. And then you can go to the fish market and you can see them there for sale. And they are, I suppose, tasty. Can't say for sure. I've not eaten one ever. They are. <laughs> <laughs> but this is it. I mean, you so people can't miss what they don't know. We, it's a very hard thing even to get people to care about people in human beings in other countries. And mm. my quest has really been to understand we know so much about what's going on. There's no one here who doesn't know that, that plastics are polluting and choking the ocean. Yet the number of people here who will then go and drink, and I'm not saying maybe just you, but beyond this room, who will drink out of a plastic water bottle and won't make that connection, right? So what does it take to make these connections? And there, was, there were researchers at Duke University, your alma mater, economists who looked at um, what they kind of defined as the finite pool of worry, which is, we're all in these pools. There's only so much we can worry about at one time. If you want me to care about what I care about, then you have to talk about these issues in ways that connect to my cares. Or you have to displace one of my cares. And the way Sylvia speaks about this as the relationship, right? I mean, you're describing to me a creature that I would love rather than fear, which yeah. is what Shark Week tells me to do, which is what the plate of food tells me to do. It's something that I consume. It's not something that I care for. And I think it's all about how you frame these issues and how I humbly attempt to do the same, but how we talk to each other and how we describe to each other what it means to save the planet, which when I was on the lift coming down in the hotel and over here, you know, I'm saying, oh, yeah, I'm going here right now. And so the guy was like, yeah, so how do we save the planet? I said, kindness, interdependence, you know, loving each other and caring for what it is that exists in the world. And that's what you have taught me to do. And I think that's how you describe these creatures. They, they come alive. Well, and to realize that they have a place in terms of making the planet work. If you took all the squids, all the cephalopods, there are only a few hundred species of cephalopods that we know about at least. Think of how many insects there are, like half a million variations on the theme of insects that we know about. Insects are relative newcomers compared to cephalopods that go back whew, 400 million years at least. Um, think Nautilus, think... Uh, Ammonites, think creatures that are in the fossil record. Think about taking a dive in the ocean today and see many creatures whose history goes back hundreds of millions of years. We are newcomers. And, and we are 
the beneficiaries, not just of all of our human past, that generation after generation, <laughs> with numbers, with language, with learning how to make clothing, uh, about how to put machinery, <laughs> now with a computer age, all, all this, this, we're beneficiaries of that, but all of that rests on this deep, deep, deep history of transforming rocks and water, the early earth into something where we have oxygen in the atmosphere, <laughs> that we breathe and we take it for granted, but we shouldn't, we mustn't, because now we know that we are altering the very underpinnings of our life support system. Now, we can still breathe, but it wasn't, again, until 1986. What was it about that year? But there's a woman scientist at MIT, Penny Chisholm, Sally Chisholm, she uses both names anyway, as an oceanographer with her colleagues, looking at plankton off Bermuda, which is a place that is notably poor, it, it was thought, in plankton. They're using plankton nets, using even millipore filters to filter out the photosynthetic organisms in the ocean to see who lives there. But well, they're using a different technique and discovered something called Prochlorococcus. You should learn that name, Prochlorococcus. You should sing a song about Prochlorococcus because 20% <laughs> of the oxygen in the atmosphere comes from this one kind of little blue-green bacterium, microbe, that does the heavy lifting along with a number of other very small, mostly not apparent if you pick up a glass of ocean water. You, you can't see that they're there, but they keep us alive. They churn out the oxygen, take up carbon dioxide, and become the basis of the food chains in the ocean. Now this knowledge is there, and we need to respect what the ocean delivers to us that we heretofore have thought of as free. But we keep drawing down the assets, taking out the fish, taking out the squid, destroying the, the marshes, the seagrass meadows, the, the mangroves, the, the systems that capture carbon. This has a direct relationship to climate. Carbon, we, we are now thinking about, and, and in some cases implementing, carbon credits for protecting forests. We need to have carbon credits for protecting the fish because they're all carbon-based units too. And they sequester the carbon and keep it from, until we take it out of the ocean and essentially burn the fish when we consume them or kill them, the carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere, along with the other things that we're doing. But, you know, there are now big, heavy-duty scientific publications on fish as carbon-based units on blue carbon, if you will, the role of carbon, the role of the ocean as it relates to the carbon cycle, to climate change. We're at this most exciting time, I think, in history of humankind because for the first time, we're beginning to see who we are and what we're doing and what we can do to secure a real place for ourselves far into the future. Or we have the power because we can see the consequences, follow the trends, do we want to have an ever-increasing number of dead zones around the coastlines? There were none that were of any significance in terms of people <laughs> being aware of them in the 1950s. 
here we are, you know, half a century or so later, there are hundreds of dead zones in coastal waters around the world. Follow those trends. How long before it extends from the coast on into the deeper parts of the ocean? We, we can see where we were, see where we are, and anticipate where the next few decades will take us. CO2 in the atmosphere. We've got the evidence. We're not making this up. It's not just, you know, something to entertain oneself. It's just, here's the, the level... opposite of. <laughs> ...of CO2 in the atmosphere. And here's the increase, and just follow the trend. It's, it's accelerating. And the loss of coral reefs. Were, I mean, taking the, the 70s as a, a sort of a high point, we'd already done some damage through what had been taken out. But it was, you know, around the world, the barrier reef was in great shape compared to what it is today. Continue without taking positive action, well, we are taking positive action. There is cause for hope. I started an organization called Mission Blue, and of course, working with the National Geographic, a project there called Pristine Seas, headed by one of my fellow explorers in residence, Enrique Sala, identifying special areas on the, in the ocean that are still, quotes, pristine, as good as it's going to get anyway, and then trying to not see them degrade mm -hmm. by working with governments, working with people, to insist that we don't let them degrade. And in parallel with that, hope spots, places that, even if they're not pristine, we can make them better than they otherwise would be if we just let the trends continue without taking action. But we can take action. <laughs> we individually and collectively can insist that the industrial fishing that now is clear-cutting the ocean, that we, we stop, at least back off. Let's have at least areas where we don't allow long lining. Big areas, not little trivial places, big areas where the fish are safe, where the sharks have a chance to recover from years of, of killing. That's, I, I want to just turn from the killing to the caring. Yeah, absolutely. I want, uh, I want us to be able to have time for questions, so please cue, there are two microphones, one and two, just toward the exit signs if you have any questions. We have just a few minutes left for them, but I'll ask my final question while people are queuing. And um, this is gonna take us away from the current conversation, but I see so many young people in the room and um, lots of young women, and I, I wonder, you know, you were referenced as a girl scientist, and whether you wanted that title or not, all of this has had to do with you I wouldn't being... mind it now. <laughs> there we go. I wouldn't mind it now either, I know. I mean, uh, but, um, but I wonder if you could say a bit about what you have sacrificed through this process. Former U.S. Secretary Madeleine Albright once said, women can have it all, they just can't have it all at once. And I thought that was so profound, and I don't think that's specific to women, but I'd love to hear that. And what you would say, um, what you would tell your younger girl scientist self now, if you could. Well, just an aside, that Madeleine Albright also said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help women. There we go, there's that too. <laughs> people who don't help people? People who don't help yeah. people, but she was yeah. thinking in terms of hell. You know, it's true with men too, but we, we're at a point where we need to, you know, take the, every chance we have to, to succeed and, 
and get the good minds to do their, their very best. If I could go back and advise myself, <laughs> what a concept. You should think about it. What would you do if you could start? You see, we have learned more in the lifetime of any of us, any of you in the audience, even if you're 10 years old, the pace of learning is picking up at the same time. It's like a race of what's happening in a, in a negative sense. At the same time, we have this positive upswing in what we know. We have the best chance we will ever have right now. I call this the sweet spot in time because of what we know coincident with the opportunities that still remain to embrace the natural world with care and understand that it isn't just because the barrier reef is beautiful. It's not just because it's aesthetically pleasing to go to a wild forest and go see koalas munch on eucalyptus in a natural setting. It's because our lives depend on it. Our economies depend on a healthy planet, the planet that works, that keeps generating oxygen, taking up carbon, holding the planet steady in the midst of a universe of really unfriendly options. Just try to go set up housekeeping on the moon for seven billion people, or even, even a few people. It's, it's a big deal. We have to make peace with this planet. And I guess I kind of knew that when I was a kid. My parents were somehow in tune with the natural world. They were, they were not scientists, but they respected nature. They both grew up on farms, and I spent my earliest years on a small farm in New Jersey. We weren't totally reliant on it for our food, but we certainly did grow a lot of the things that, that we consumed. My father was a natural engineer, and I guess I came to respect something about how things work, watching him work, and how things are put together, and understanding the, the role of wild things in terms of that rain was something you welcome. It wasn't just a, something that spoiled your picnics. It was something really important to maintaining our, our farm. And I, I wanted to be a scientist even before I knew what to call it. It just, I loved animals, and I loved plants, and I loved being a part of the world. That, and, and I hated it when I saw, you know, natural forests getting chewed up. I just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. For, I guess gr growing up close to the land and later as a kid going to Florida, my backyard was the Gulf of Mexico. Respect for nature. It's something that should be, you know, kids are increasingly detached from the natural world. And my recipe for helping that is no child left dry. Oh. <laughs> Go That's out fantastic. and get wet. <laughs> and find the child in yourself. I mean, I think I, it never left me. You know, scientists are tend to be kids who never quite grew up. But you don't have to be a scientist to have that joy. To play in the water. A little kid, yeah. yeah. And looking at the world with wonder. That it's a miracle to be alive and to enjoy it and respect it. So wonder, gratitude, interdependence, kindness, love, care. Yeah. I want us to move to questions. We have eight minutes oh, left for questions. Short answers, <laughs> yeah. short questions, and we'll get through lots of people, and we'll start right here um, at microphone one. Thank you, my name's Alison Laughlin, and I appreciate you uh, reevaluating what I'm gonna have for lunch. I was gonna have fish and chips. Um, 
I agree with your concerns about fish farming, but I feel we need to feed people, and I wondered your opinions about deep ocean sustainable fish farming. I know they're doing it in Panama, Hawaii, and I think there's even one in Adelaide on those big, big nets. There's some general principles about, about farming, fish farming included, and, it, and you can use those as sort of guidelines. Look over 10,000 years of, about the animals we've chosen to grow. Out of the, you know, there are 9,000 kinds of birds or so, and we, we don't eat eagles or owls, we don't try to raise them, they're carnivores, and they live a very long time. We don't raise albatrosses, they can, they're as old as we are. Or they can be, or maybe older. <laughs> anyway, so, low on the food chain, eat plants, raise things like catfish, I know tilapia is not in good favor in many parts of the world, but it's like the chicken of cultivated critters. It, they grow about as fast as chickens, they eat plants, they don't mind crowding, they taste like whatever you put on them, whether it's garlic or <laughs> onions or lemon, uh, sort of like chicken, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's a matter of being smart about what you grow. Uh, it isn't smart to grow salmon. You'd get this many wild fish to feed this many farm fish. And we aren't even accounting when they say it's four or five to one, accounting for what it took to make the fish that you feed the fish. You have to start back at ground zero, at photosynthesis. To get a pound of tuna, it's it tens of thousands of pounds of plants to make one pound of tuna. To make a pound of cow, it's about 20 pounds of plants. A pound of catfish or tilapia or carp or chicken, it's about two pounds of plants. So you do the numbers. It's, you know, you have to decide, are, are we feeding people? Is this food security or is this food choice? Are we looking for a high-end, once-in-a-while treat like tuna or abalone or lobster? Those are all, you know, even though abalone are grazers, it takes about eight years to make an abalone from an egg. And now I was astonished, astonished to find that abalone are being fed fish. You know, they feed abalone in these abalone farms, ground up little pellets, but taking wild fish to feed to an herbivore, the way we're grinding up fish to feed to cows these days. It's really insane. We've got to, got to get this straight. We have to feed people, but we have to be smarter about fish are not free. When you take fish from the ocean, you're depleting our bank account, if you're depleting our life support system. We have to think differently about wild fish. And if we're going to grow them, and I think it's one of the solutions for food security, to take fish that do grow fast, convert sunlight's energy to plants to protein in a very short, efficient step, with more crop per drop, as they say, with efficient use of water. And so enclosed systems, not open systems, closed systems where you really you know, you account for things. Anyway, there are answers. I'm sorry. Thank Take you. Taking much too We're long. We're going to have just time for one more question. Oh, Probably dear. depends okay. all on you. Um, question number two, please. Thank you very much. Um, I'm what you would call a, a full professor, um, and there are 13% of full professors that are women still. Um, I was wondering how it is that so many of the noted oceanographers, marine biologists, are women. 
I, I sort of missed the last part. How many? Why are so many of our noted oceanographers, marine biologists, women? Well, it wasn't always that way. This is part of the change that has taken place in the last few decades. Change for the good that you see women, I mean, uh, when I first went to sea in 1964, uh, captains would often revolt at the thought of having a woman on board. Bad luck, the, the ship will sink if we have a woman on board. And, and, and I was told that once on a little expedition, it was only when I agreed that I would do the dishes and help with the cooking that they, he finally relented and let me come aboard. Again, all, not quite so many men as the, the time when there were 70 to one, but I think it's, it's the change in culture and a recognition that women are just through their own accomplishments and, and men allowing it to be so. Is there something special about oceanography, etc., that draws women to it as well? I, I'm sorry. I Is there something special about the oceans or oceanography that draws women? Drew me. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think there are women who are drawn to all parts of, of the living world. Uh, birds, mm. mammals, are some of the best scientists studying elephants, for example. Um, they're only semi-aquatic creatures <laughs> with a built-in <laughs> snorkel. <laughs> A question here, please. Hi, my Thank name's you. Emily, and I guess you could call me a girl scientist. I've just graduated environmental science from the University of Newcastle last year, so Great. I'm pretty new to the game. <laughs> I'm definitely looking into more research. I have so many questions I would love to ask you, One but I've just been minutes. sitting here and um, I'm reading the book Stung um, Jellyfish and the History of History, the <laughs> Future right. of the Ocean, at the moment that you wrote the foreword for. Um, and there's a lot so far in the book about um, the impact of fertilisers, uh, so nitrates and, and um, phosphates in the ocean. And um, I just wanted to ask you, um, considering the impacts that those fertilisers do have on the ocean and the impacts, um, the things that we do on the land, so we've mentioned plastic pollution, um, what kind of actions can we be taking on the land to minimise our impacts on the ocean, I guess? What sort of things can you do on the land to minimize the impacts on the ocean? Well, it starts very clearly with knowing, with understanding, and where does the garbage go? <laughs> and, and trying to bring about change. And, and who does this? How do you make change? It starts with individuals such as you who raise the questions, and then you don't stop asking the questions. You take it the next step and you get others to start asking the question too. You change the laws, you change the policies. Individual behavior counts, but it's really great when you can legislate as some parts of the world have decided we're not gonna have single-use plastic bags in our grocery stores anymore to facilitate the buildup of trash. We, we'll, you know, or single-use plastic cups go back to glass, which, you know, has a long history of being durable and reusable. Um, I think everyone should just look in the mirror and ask that question. What can I do individually? What can I do collectively with, within the society over which I, what powers do you have? Uh, to, some are good with numbers, some have a great voice. 
some are teachers. Kids have great power to motivate the people around them. Know what the goal is. We want to have a healthier ocean. Well, what's causing the problem? Go back to the beginning and then see what you can do in your own community, in your own backyard, in your own behavior. Uh, it seems logical to me. I, I do want to acknowledge one individual whom I first met here in Sydney who made a difference. He's an engineer, Graham Kelleher, who's the first director of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. And he's one of my fellow ocean elders. And it, it, having individuals who will step up and use their voice, use their power, and not just, not just um, do the job that they're assigned, but to assign the bigger job of making a difference within the framework that you have. Life is, is the most important thing you've got. You, you can just go with the flow. Now, Graham Kelleher, Kelleher, when he was head of the Marine Park Authority, had several opportunities to just kick back and let things go with the flow, but he stood up and kept making it better, making it more of a force, and that's what each of us can do. <laughs> Valerie, with a cod hole out in the barrier reef. That was because of Graham Kelly. <laughs> 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 he the hats. Yeah, yeah, there we, we go. We have to wrap here, but the goal is to be fearless like Dr. Earl, to be strong like a wave, and to be curious like a cephalopod. Thank you all so <laughs> <you go>. much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.